0: Learn about Treaty 7 at the Glenbow Museum and listen to CJSW 90.9 FM for more. This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9
1: FM in Calgary. the story of corporate rights in the First Amendment in the 1930s highlights that corporations don't merely win rights after individuals have them, but that corporations are often innovators in constitutional law, that corporations have been behind some of the earliest and most influential lawsuits that helped to breathe life into important constitutional provisions driven by the same pursuit of profit that leads corporations to be at the vanguard of the economy. Uh, Corporations have been at the vanguard of constitutional rights litigation.
0: That's Adam Winkler, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Adam Winkler on corporate constitutional rights. The term corporation is not in the Constitution. Yet this entity has emerged over the years as the most dominant force in society. Although never oppressed like women and minorities, corporations have fought to win equal rights under the Constitution. Today, they have nearly all the same rights as ordinary people. Corporations have waged a persistent campaign to expand their power and to strike down regulation. They have systematically pursued and won legal privileges through the courts, especially the Supreme Court. Most notoriously, the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United decision paved the way for unlimited anonymous money to be spent in elections. The idea that corporations are persons and money is free speech strike at the very heart of equality. Justice John Paul Stevens, in his Citizens United dissent, said, A democracy cannot function effectively if citizens believe laws are being bought and sold. Our guest today is Adam Winkler. He's professor of law at UCLA. He's the author of We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights, a National Book Award finalist. He spoke at the Denver chapter of the American Constitution Society in November 2019. And now,
1: Adam Winkler. As many of you know, corporations have been at the center of some of the biggest Supreme Court cases in recent years. In 2010, in the Citizens United case, the Supreme Court held that business corporations had the same free speech rights as individuals. Uh, and could use that right to spend unlimited amounts of money on election ads to influence elections. Now, some people think that Citizens United will lead to a corporate takeover of American democracy. Now, I just think that's a silly idea. I mean, we all know that corporations took over American democracy a long time ago. <laughs> uh, indeed, today corporations have uh, many of the same rights as you and me, rights that they use to challenge. Uh, laws that regulate the economy, that regulate business, and that regulate the marketplace. Although these days, uh, originalism is often said to be on the rise, um, if you go back and look at the history of any of our constitutional amendments, you'll have a tough time finding any original understanding that those particular amendments would apply to business corporations. But yet, nonetheless, corporations have won many, many of our rights. So how did corporations win so many of our fundamental rights, well, of course, corporations don't march on the street with signs saying corporations are people and demanding equal rights, although I guess it'd be fun to see the jolly green giant protesting something. Instead, corporations have led a 200 year effort to win Supreme Court rulings recognizing their rights. So their rights have been won through litigation, not through public advocacy and protest. Uh, and indeed, corporations have really led a bold, persistent, uh, and ultimately successful campaign to win so many of our rights. In law school today, uh, students will learn about civil rights, women's rights, immigrants' rights, LGBTQ rights, even states' rights. But there has also been a long tradition of corporate rights that remains largely hidden. Now, Citizens United did bring a tremendous amount of public attention to the question of whether corporations should have the same rights as people. Uh, But the fight for corporate rights goes back to America's earliest days. To put this in some perspective, the first Supreme Court case explicitly to ask whether African Americans had rights under the Constitution uh, was the Dred Scott case, um, 1857. As many of you know, Dred Scott lost that case. The first Supreme Court case on whether was explicitly to ask whether women had rights under the Constitution uh, was uh, Bradwell versus Illinois in 1873, uh, and Myra Bradwell lost that case too. Um, the first Supreme Court case on the rights of corporations, by contrast, was decided in 1809, a half century before these landmark cases that every student in law school learns about. And the corporation behind that case uh, was the Bank of the United States. At the time, the richest and most powerful corporation in America. At a time when most corporations were very local concerns, the Bank of the United States uh, was the first truly national corporation with branches from Boston all the way to New Orleans. The heated debate over the Bank of the United States, you know it was very controversial, and the heated debate over the Bank of the United States was famous for giving rise to the two-party system in America um, and also uh, giving us a pretty good rap battle in Hamilton the Musical, if you had a chance to see that. Um, And the bank was despised by Jeffersonians, who were determined, a little bit like opponents of Obamacare today, to kill it by any means necessary. And in Georgia... Jeffersonians passed a law imposing a special tax on the Savannah branch of the Bank of the United States. Uh, And the bank wanted to challenge that tax in court, but didn't want to go to state court, didn't want to challenge the law in Georgia courts, where the popular law would likely be upheld by the Georgia courts. The bank wanted to go to federal court. The bank's case presented a familiar question. Are corporations people? Or more specifically, are corporations' citizens under Article 3 of the Constitution. This is a provision in Article 3 uh, that uh, says the judicial power shall extend to controversies between citizens of different states. And what this uh, provision does is uh, effectively uh, provide that if uh, one citizen wants to sue a citizen of another state, so if a citizen of Colorado wants to sue a citizen of California, um, they uh, can go to federal court and do it. And the idea behind this provision, the framers, when they were writing this provision, were thinking that state courts were often beholden to to local interests. And uh, you should have a neutral tribunal, a federal tribunal, if citizens of different states were going uh, at each other in litigation. And the bank, which was headquartered in Philadelphia, claimed that it would be subject to the same prejudice if forced to litigate the lawfulness of Georgia's tax in Georgia's courts. Now, of course, when the framers wrote this provision, they weren't thinking about corporations, right? They're talking about citizens, not corporations. And indeed, the framers harbored considerable hostility towards big corporations at the time of the revolution. We all know the famous uh, Boston Tea Party that we learned about in school. And and the way we learned it was that it was a protest against the British government, which surely it was. Um, But it was also a protest against what was then the world's most powerful business corporation, the East India Company. Uh, In the the early 1770s, the East India Company's uh, profits plunged and threatened to bring down the financial markets of Europe because everyone was heavily invested uh, in uh, the East India Company. And the British government deemed deemed the, the East India Company too big to fail and passed an unprecedented bailout of this private corporation. And one of the provisions of the bailout was that for the first time, the East India Company could sell tea in the colonies without having to use American middlemen. Um, So the law that was passed that that was being protested at the Boston Tea Party actually was a law that lowered the price of tea, right? It made it cheaper to buy tea, but it did so at the expense of American merchants who are now cut out of the tea trade. And uh, many of the angry colonists who gathered that night in Boston and who went to the harbor to throw overboard the tea were themselves merchants, and they chose that ship and that tea specifically because the tea belonged to the East India Company. Now, although there was no evidence that the framers of the Constitution were thinking about corporations when they wrote the Constitution, uh, The Supreme Court, in an opinion by the legendary Chief Justice John Marshall, nevertheless held that the Bank of the United States did have the right to sue in federal court. So whereas Dred Scott lost his case and Myra Bradwell lost her case, the first corporate rights case was won by the corporation. Um, Now, Marshall did not say that corporations were citizens as such. That would be a hard claim to make. Instead, Marshall said corporations had the right to sue under that provision of the Constitution because their members were citizens. They were made up of people, and those people were themselves citizens entitled to the right to sue under Article 3. Even though the bank's lawsuit was brought in the name of the corporation to recover the property that belonged to the corporation, not to the members themselves as individuals, um, the Supreme Court uh, and Marshall said that, quote, "essentially the parties in such a case are the members." Of the corporation, the first case to extend constitutional protections to uh, business corporations, Bank of the United States versus DeVoe, is one of the neglected landmarks of American law. You won't find it in any constitutional law ca- take textbook. Uh, you won't find it in very many histories of the period either. But yet, it laid the foundation for two centuries of corporate rights cases to come that ultimately resulted in Citizens United. Now, unless you think that the right to sue in federal court under Article Three is a minor and insignificant right, not the kind of thing you'd spend much time worrying about, um, let me remind you that uh, that was the exact same right that was at issue in the Dred Scott case. In the Dred Scott case, the Supreme Court held that African Americans could not sue in federal court because they were not citizens. They could not be citizens of the United States if I can uh, borrow some of the language from uh, the Dred Scott opinion, we might say that unlike racial minorities, corporations did have rights the white man was bound to respect. Now, in the decades after 1809, corporations would return to the Supreme Court over and over again, seeking uh, an ever greater share of the Constitution's protections. And some corporations were willing to do almost anything to get those rights. A remarkable and disturbing example uh, is from the 1880s and the Southern Pacific Railroad Company, which launched a remarkable series of cases designed to extend 14th Amendment rights to business corporations. And this was a story that involved uh, uh, an illustrious lawyer who lied to the Supreme Court, an unethical Supreme Court justice that was in cahoots with one of the parties in the case, and a piece of shocking evidence that seemed to suggest that Americans had been hoodwinked when they added the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. So let me explain, the 14th Amendment was adopted in 1868 right after the Civil War uh, to overturn the Dred Scott case and to guarantee equal rights for racial minorities. And it prohibits states from denying any person within their jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now, this language was designed uh, to ensure that states would not discriminate on the basis of race, but when California imposed a tax on railroad property that didn't apply to individually owned property, a property owned by individuals, um, the Southern Pacific Railroad said that it too was a victim of unconstitutional discrimination in violation of the 14th Amendment. To challenge the tax, the Southern Pacific Railroad assembled an all-star dream team of lawyers. Now, of course, lawyers have played a starring role in all the great civil rights movements, right? We think of Thurgood Marshall in civil rights or Ruth Bader Ginsburg in women's rights. Any movement that seeks to win Supreme Court rulings recognizing new rights um, must have really good lawyers to um, come up with the creative arguments, to persuade the justices, to write the briefs. Uh, And corporate rights were no exception. Among the lawyers over the course of American history uh, who argued for the rights of business corporations were Daniel Webster, considered by many to be the greatest Supreme Court advocate ever, argued more than 200 cases in the early 1800s, many of them on behalf of businesses and uh, business corporations. We have John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States, who, as a lawyer, argued about corporate rights in the Supreme Court. And today, uh, the dean of the elite Supreme Court bar in Washington, Ted Olson, uh, has also argued for corporate rights. Unlike traditional civil rights organizations, business corporations have often had uh, the financial resources to hire the best most uh, expensive lawyers money can buy to bring even lawsuits that had a slight, only a small likelihood of winning. The Southern Pacific Railroad's lead lawyer was a fellow named uh, Roscoe Conkling, and his name is pretty much lost to most of us today. You probably don't know much about Roscoe Conkling, but if you were alive in the 1880s, you knew Roscoe Conkling. He was considered by many to be the most powerful man in Washington, the president included. He was one of the leaders of the Republican Party in the Senate. Like uh, Mitch McConnell today, perhaps, uh, but uh, at a time when the Republican Party in Washington uh, just dominated Washington politics uh, back in the 1870s uh, uh, up into the 1880s. Conkling had even been nominated to serve on the Supreme Court himself, twice, in fact. The most recent time, just a few months before he appeared before the Supreme Court in the Southern Pacific Railroad case. And, and uh, that same year, not only was he nominated to the Supreme Court, he was actually confirmed to the Supreme Court. He turned down the seat. Um, he, um, uh, he remains to this day the last person to turn down a seat on the United States Supreme Court after having won confirmation. And his reasons were uh, plain uh, for anyone to see. As he said himself, he was simply making too much money as a lawyer for the railroads. Now Conkling uh, uh, Conkling and the Southern Pacific Railroad's lawyers first adopted a strategy of civil disobedience. They would refuse to pay the tax. And then when California decided to try to enforce the tax against them, the Southern Pacific Railroad launched a remarkable series of what the lawyers called test cases, more than 60 of them in all. Uh, seeking uh, to uh, overturn California's law and to secure broad new rights uh, for corporations against discrimination under the 14th Amendment. The day the Southern Pacific Railroad's case was heard by the Supreme Court, a newspaper headline captured what was at stake, Civil Rights of Corporations. Now, of course, the text of the 14th Amendment doesn't seem to provide any rights for corporations, right? It says, no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. But Roscoe Conkling was not the type of lawyer who'd allow a little thing like the text of the Constitution to get in his way. And Conkling stood before the justices who really viewed him as a peer, right? This is someone who had just months before been confirmed to the Supreme Court but he turned down the seat um, and he appeared before the justices and he argued that the language of the 14th Amendment was changed in the drafting process specifically to include corporations and that the word person was used in the 14th Amendment, he said to, quote, embrace artificial persons as well as natural persons. Now, this was obviously an audacious argument for Roscoe Conkling uh, to make, but he was unusually situated to make it. When Roscoe Conkling was a young congressman, he served on the committee that drafted the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. So when he was telling the justices about what was in the minds of the drafters of the 14th Amendment, he was talking about his own personal experience, very powerful testimony. Indeed, by 1882, Conkling was the last surviving member of the drafting committee. So there was really no one there to challenge his argument. Conkling even produced a surprising piece of evidence, uh, a musty old journal that he claimed was a never-before-published record of the deliberations of the 14th Amendment Drafting Committee. And he said, a close look at the journal will show you that when we were debating the 14th Amendment, we were also thinking about businesses that were being discriminated against by uh, various kinds of state laws. Uh, When you think about it, what Roscoe Conkling was really kind of admitting to was a constitutional conspiracy of the highest order. Right? He was basically saying, hey, the drafters of the 14th Amendment wrote this provision to protect corporations and racial minorities, but we only told you it was about racial minorities. And so when everyone voted on it and states adopted the 14th Amendment, they were only thinking this was about racial minorities, but they were being effectively hoodwinked, if you will, into protecting corporations as well. Conkling shrugged off this uh, a little bit of a paradox or problem that he, had, he was recognizing in the oral argument by telling the justices that, um, that the American people, quote, may have builded better than they knew. Now, there was one small problem with Roscoe Conkling's account of the history of the drafting of the 14th Amendment. It simply wasn't true. We now know that the language of the amendment was never changed in the way that Roscoe Conkling told the justices, and no, none of uh, the other framers, of, drafters of the 14th Amendment ever said or implied in any way that the 14th Amendment was also intended to protect business corporations, too. As one historian who examined the evidence closely concluded, the trusted Conkling had engaged in, quote, a brazen, deliberate forgery, to win new rights for corporations, the Supreme Court never issued a final ruling in Roscoe Conkling's case. Oddly enough, holding on to it for three years, uh, some people said uh, since have said since that maybe there was a procedural snafu, some debate about the facts in the lower court decision uh, that was un- that were uh, uh, that was unclear. Um, but I suspect that Conkling's fraud was uncovered by the justices. Um, But regardless of whether they did or they didn't, um, another one of Southern Pacific Railroad's 60 test cases came before the Supreme Court just a couple years later, and it raised the exact same issue about the 14th Amendment rights of business corporations. Uh, The only difference was that Conkling was no longer involved, and there was no mention of Conkling's journal or the drafting history of the 14th Amendment, again suggesting that the lawyers probably figured out that he was um, playing fast and loose with the facts, Uh, When the second Southern Pacific Railroad case came up, um, the Supreme Court ultimately ruled in favor of the railroad, but not on constitutional grounds. The court ruled in favor of the Southern Pacific Railroad, the court said, because there was some statutory thing in California law that could handle this issue. And the court explicitly stated in the opinion, we express no opinion on whether corporations have 14th Amendment rights. The court was not deciding that issue. But then the Southern Pacific Railroad's test cases took another totally bizarre turn. The court's opinions are published in uh, official uh, in the United States reports. These are the official um, volumes that contain the uh, actual opinions of the Supreme Court justices. The volumes are put together by someone known as the Reporter of Decisions, bureaucratic position, uh, And as by tradition, the reporter of decisions uh, writes up a summary of the opinion and publishes it right before the opinion in the official (laughs) volume. And this is done to make legal research easier. Uh, Someone who wants to know what the case said can just look, read the summary really quickly um, uh, before diving into the bigger case. The Supreme Court's reporter back in the 1880s, when the second Southern Pacific Railroad case, was heard was a man named J.C. Bancroft Davis and Davis's summary of the Southern Pacific Railroad case said the defendant corporations are persons within the intent of the clause in the 14th amendment which forbids a state to deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. He was saying that the Supreme Court had ruled on this issue when in fact the opinion said explicitly that the court was not ruling on that issue. And we don't know what exactly motivated Bancroft Davis to include this inaccurate, fraudulent, perhaps, summary in, uh, in front of the Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad case. But if you're someone who believes in conspiracy theories, you might be interested to know that J.C. Bancroft Davis was the former president of the Newburgh and New York <laughs> Railway Company. Justice Stephen Field was one who saw the opportunity presented by Davis's inaccurate summary. Field, if you're not familiar with him, was one of the most colorful justices ever to sit on the Supreme Court of the United States. He was the first justice from the Wild West, from California. I think all of us can appreciate a nice Wild West justice. And as appropriate for a Wild West justice, uh, he was reputed to carry a gun with him everywhere he went, including underneath his judicial robes. He's also, by the way, the only sitting justice ever to be uh, arrested for a crime while he was on the Supreme Court. And the crime was murder. Now, he was innocent, of course. Um, uh, He's a Supreme Court justice. You have people do that for you. But we could perhaps say he was guilty of one thing, which was that he was desperate to issue a ruling Recognizing expansive 14th Amendment rights for business corporations. Field was close friends with Leland Stanford, the owner of the Southern Pacific Railroad. Uh, in fact, uh, when Stanford uh, formed his university in Palo Alto, Field was one of the founding trustees. During the Southern Pacific Railroad's litigation, uh, Field advised Stanford, told Stanford uh, which lawyers to hire to make the case, which arguments. To, uh, to make in the briefs. Uh, and then as a lower court judge, because just, just, justices at the time often sat as lower court justices as well, um, he presided over the case that he had uh, been working with uh, Leland Stanford uh, to advise him on. Um, and even when the case made it to the Supreme Court, uh, Stephen Field shared with Stanford's lawyers confidential internal memoranda of the justices of the Supreme Court to inform him about their thoughts about the case. When the Southern Pacific Railroad case was handed down, uh, Field wrote his own opinion uh, in a companion case, castigating his colleagues for failing to rule on the 14th Amendment issue. He said the businessmen of America deserve to know whether they their rights are protected too, and that the court absolutely had a duty to address this question, but failed to do so. Nonetheless, in a case just a couple years later, um, Field writes the majority opinion. And he includes in the majority opinion, he drops the sentence uh, that uh, corporations are persons within the meaning of the clause, uh, within the meaning of the 14th Amendment, it was so held in Santa Clara County Co. Uh, versus uh, Southern Pacific Railroad. Something that Field clearly knew to be untrue. This is not a misinterpretation. He had written an opinion three years earlier saying, hey, we didn't rule on this constitutional issue, but now here he is just dropping it in a sentence. And indeed, in the decades to follow, the Southern Pacific Railroad case would be cited dozens of times by the Supreme Court and by lower federal courts for holding that corporations were people under the 14th Amendment to the Constitution and had equal rights and were free from discrimination. One reason Field was able to get away with the sleight of hand that reflects this uh, decision um, is in part because of how decisions were written back in the day. Back in the 1880s, justices didn't generally all share their opinions unless it was a controversial case. They just wrote their opinion and published it. Remember, they didn't have an office. They each worked out of their own homes in the 1880s. There was no Supreme Court building that they had offices in. Um, And so the job of a justice was much more like an independent contractor than it is uh, today. And he was also able to get away with it because the court at the time was entering into a period in its history known as the Lochner era, which lasted roughly from the 1890s to 1937. And it's a period where the, the Supreme Court was notorious for reading the constitution broadly to strike down laws regulating businesses and regulating the economy. Uh, In this period, the Supreme Court struck down federal child labor laws, minimum wage laws, maximum hour laws, zoning laws. Meanwhile, in cases like Plessy against Ferguson, decided also in the 1890s, the same Supreme Court refused to read the 14th Amendment broadly to protect the rights of African Americans, upholding Jim Crow segregation. Indeed, between 1868... when the the 14th Amendment was ratified, in 1912, the Supreme Court decided a total of 28 cases on the rights of African Americans. And during that same period of time, an astonishing 312 cases on the rights of business corporations. The 14th Amendment, adopted as a shield to protect the rights of the most vulnerable minorities, had been transformed by the Southern Pacific Railroad, Roscoe Conkling, and Stephen Field into a sword to strike down business regulation that would be used by the wealthiest and most powerful corporations in America.
0: You're listening to Adam Winkler on Corporate Constitutional Rights. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program and Adam Winkler's book, We the Corporations, by calling... One eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven that's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven or you can order online on our website alternativeradio dot that's alternativeradio
1: dot now while the Lochner court was quite business friendly and famous for doing so for being so, uh, the justices of that era also surprisingly perhaps imposed new limits on the rights of business corporations. In a 1905 case, the Supreme Court uh, held that corporations had property rights, but not liberty rights. Businesses needed protection for their inventory, their buildings, their land. The government couldn't come swoop in and take all that without paying just compensation. But the court said, corporations are not entitled to liberty rights those rights in the Constitution that pertain to personal conscience, political freedom, or bodily integrity, those rights were not appropriate for a business corporation. In a case evocative of the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, the Supreme Court in 1907 held that a corporation did not have the right to refuse service to unwanted customers. Uh, The case came out of uh, California and involved the Tanferin Racetrack, Up uh, just south of, uh, uh, just around San Francisco area. The Tanford racetrack challenged a California law that required places of public amusement to allow admission to anyone of age with a valid ticket. It's an early version of an anti-discrimination law. And uh, the company challenged that law because it wanted to pick and choose who it could allow in its Doors And it said the the law violated its freedom of association under the Constitution and said that the law was pretty much just like um, the state requiring a private host of a party to welcome in uninvited and unwelcome guests. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court upheld uh, the California law in the Tanfarin case, calling the asserted right a liberty right that was not appropriate for business corporations. In another instance of deja vu, uh, corporations like the Lansing Brewing Company challenged campaign finance laws that limited corporate spending in elections a hundred years before Citizens United. In the early 1900s, some of the very first campaign finance laws were adopted and they were generally bans on corporate money in elections. Uh, And uh, alcohol companies wanted to challenge those rules um, in the run-up to Prohibition. As the country in the 19-teens was debating whether to ban alcohol, first in a county-by-county basis and then nationwide in the Prohibition Amendment, the 18th Amendment, um, uh, the Lansing Brewing Company and others wanted to make expenditures on these local elections, on whether to go dry and prohibit alcohol or, or to allow people. Um, uh, but in court case after court case, there were several of them, um, the courts uniformly and consistently upheld the campaign finance laws, saying that the right to spend money to influence elections is not uh, the kind of right that an artificial person ought to have, that instead that's a right of natural persons to influence elections. Corporations had rights, but they didn't have the exact same rights as you and me, even in the Lochner era. Now, the boundary between property rights and liberty rights uh, established by the Lochner Court uh, would be blurred in the 20th century. And surprisingly, it was often progressives on the court who would seek to blur that line. It began with the First Amendment in the 1930s. And the story of corporate rights and the First Amendment in the 1930s highlights that corporations don't merely win rights after individuals have but that corporations are often innovators in constitutional law. That corporations have been behind some of the earliest and most influential lawsuits that helped to breathe life into important constitutional uh, provisions. Driven by the same pursuit of profit that leads corporations to be at the vanguard of the economy, Uh, corporations have been at the vanguard of constitutional rights litigation. In the early 20th century, the Supreme Court first began to strike down laws uh, for violating the First Amendment guarantee of the freedom of the press. And some of the earliest and most influential cases were brought by business corporations, such as the newspaper corporations in Louisiana that took on the iron-fisted demagogue governor of Louisiana, uh, Huey Long. If you're not too familiar with Huey Long, um, let's just say he was Trump before Trump. He was an outspoken, boisterous populist uh, who won election uh, to the governor's uh, mansion uh, in Louisiana on the eve of the Great Depression, promising to make Louisiana great again. And when the major newspapers in Louisiana opposed his agenda and were writing critical stories about him and his agenda. He accused the papers of publishing fake news and had his allies in the legislature pass a law imposing a special tax on the advertising revenue of these big newspaper corporations in Louisiana. Long said that his tax, quote, should be called a tax on lying, two cents per lie. Now, the newspaper companies wanted to challenge Long's tax in court, But to be frank, the law at the time was on Long's side. The Supreme Court had said that the freedom of the press up until then only protected against prior restraints. Government could not censor you in advance of speech but government could punish you after the fact and government could impose incidental burdens like the advertising tax that was imposed on the newspaper companies. It wasn't so prohibitive that they couldn't operate. Um, uh, But these kinds of incidental burdens were okay, uh, the court uh, said up until the 1930s. Nevertheless, the Supreme Court issued a landmark ruling in the Louisiana Newspapers case uh, in the early 1930s. Uh, And the court said that The freedom of the press protected against all forms of censorship, not just a prior restraint. And corporations were entitled to claim that right too. In a modern society, um, newspapers play a really important role in checking the government, uh, in investigating wrongdoing by government officials, by encouraging democratic debate. Um, And those newspapers are published by business corporations. Indeed, in the years to follow, corporations would be involved in many of the most important landmark First Amendment freedom of speech cases um, that we still know today. New York Times Company versus Sullivan, about whether the New York Times Company had uh, a right uh, to criticize uh, public officials or to print ads criticizing public officials. Um, Or the Pentagon Papers case uh, involving the Washington Post and the New York Times, Uh, Indeed, if you saw uh, the recent movie The Post, um, you just may have found yourself at the very end rooting for a business corporation asserting its First Amendment rights. The free speech rights of business corporations expanded greatly in the 1970s. And again, progressives played an influential role in that story, too. Um, And in fact, uh, the person who deserves a lot of the credit is Ralph Nader. The famed corporate crusader won uh, a groundbreaking Supreme Court case in 1976, known as the Virginia Pharmacy case, uh, and that that case struck down a law that prohibited pharmacists from advertising the prices of prescription drugs. Um, and Nader and his consumer advocacy group, Public Citizen, took this case on because they were trying to help consumers, not pharmacists. Right? They uh, there were a lot of consumers out there who were paying. Um, uh, exorbitant rates for their prescription medications and they couldn't comparison shop easily because there were no advertisements of the prices. In fact, even if you called the pharmacist and asked them for their prices, most pharmacists at the time wouldn't tell you uh, because they were fearful of violating the pharmacy law, the law uh, that burdened and barred uh, pharmacists from advertising prescription drug prices. But Nader's victory in that case, although on behalf of consumers, established two First Amendment principles that have since been used to great success by business corporations. The first principle was uh, that speech on commercial matters, commercial speech, uh, was protected by the First Amendment. The Supreme Court had previously, back in the 1940s, said that commercial speech was not and advertising was not protected by the First Amendment at all. But Nader's case caused the Supreme Court to reconsider. Applying this new doctrine of commercial speech, saying it is protected by the First Amendment, Um, uh, corporations were, in the years to come, empowered to challenge a whole range of laws that limited advertising, uh, including, for instance, striking, getting uh, struck down graphic uh, warnings on cigarette labels, um, uh, a rule requiring public companies to disclose the use of conflict minerals, um, and a wide variety of gambling, uh, tobacco, and alcohol ads. Um, that are still able to be restricted in some ways, but not nearly as much as they were originally. Indeed, thanks to this commercial speech doctrine that came out of the Virginia Pharmacy case, today about 50% of all First Amendment cases brought in the federal and state courts today are brought by business corporations asserting their First Amendment rights or trade associations that represent business corporations. Indeed, uh, recently, not too long ago, the head of Nader's public interest organization, Public Citizen, called for the entire line of cases coming out of Virginia Pharmacy to be overturned, Uh, a rather poignant example of constitutional buyer's remorse. The second principle established by Nader's victory was that the First Amendment protected the rights of listeners, not just the rights of speakers, Remember that Nader represented consumers. He didn't represent pharmacists. He wasn't looking to help the pharmacies who were trying to sell to people. So he didn't represent and didn't have as plaintiffs any pharmacists whose speech was restricted. He only had consumers. And when you think about it, the consumer speech rights weren't limited by the Virginia law at all. It was a regulation of pharmacists. To be a licensed pharmacist, you couldn't advertise. But the consumers were honestly—they could have gathered all the information and advertised themselves. Obviously, they had no reason to do so. But the consumers' rights weren't to speak; weren't really limited by the Virginia law. So Nader made a very uh, innovative argument that the First Amendment protects speech uh, and the rights of listeners, and regardless of the identity of the speaker, if the substance of the speech is itself protected by the should be uh, protected by the First Amendment itself if it had value to the listeners. This became known as the listeners' rights view of uh, the First uh, Amendment. And it fundamentally divorced speech protection from the identity of the speaker. It no longer mattered who the speaker was. Uh, It only mattered whether there were listeners that had rights to hear that speech. Now, writing for the court in the Nader case, uh, the Virginia Pharmacy case, Justice Harry Blackmun adopted Nader's theory perfectly, Uh, and the case is uh, a perfect example of the listener's rights uh, theory of the First Amendment. That theory, however, would very quickly, after 1976, be used to strike down, for the first time, a law regulating corporate money in elections. 30 years before Citizens United, uh, the Supreme Court first struck down a campaign finance law limiting corporate spending in, in elections in a case called First National Bank of Boston versus Ballotti. And the case involved a Massachusetts law that prohibited corporations from spending money uh, to influence ballot measure campaigns, you know, initiatives and referenda and that kind of thing. And the, ma- the majority opinion for the Supreme Court in-, in the divided 5-4 court that it was was written by Lewis Powell, Jr. Now, just prior to joining the Supreme Court in 1971, just a few months, uh, Powell wrote a confidential memorandum to the Chamber of Commerce, outlining a strategy For business mobilization. It was the era of Nader, environmentalism, the laws that were passed during that time, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, auto safety laws. It was a burst of regulation of business and the economy and the interest of consumers, the likes of which we've never seen since and almost today seems impossible to imagine. And Powell said, these people are destroying the free market. People like Nader are destroying the free market and they're going to destroy our country and we need to fight back. And so his memo to the Chamber of Commerce, entitled The Attack on the American Free Enterprise System, outlined a plan for businesses to get involved, to spend money, to form think tanks, to pursue litigation, uh, defending their interests, uh, and getting over that traditional reluctance of business people to get involved in politics. Today, historians of that period, of the 1970s, credit Powell's Memorandum, which was confidential when he was appointed to the Supreme Court, but soon after was publicized and became um, a call to arms across the nation. Uh, Very famous at the time, the Powell Memorandum. Uh, And historians of that period uh, all say that the Powell Memorandum played a very influential role um, in uh, sparking the comeback of business uh, in the late 1970s, the rise of the think tanks, Uh, and uh, ultimately the uh, uh, election of Ronald Reagan to the White House. In the Bellotti case, Powell had the opportunity to uh, turn his memorandum into constitutional law. Yet, after the court originally voted in the case, Powell saw his majority slipping away. As one justice after another said, Well, you know what, Uh, I don't think, uh, we don't like what Massachusetts did here, but we don't think we should issue a ruling saying that corporations have broad political speech rights. What about all these laws that have gone back 100 years, that or almost 100 years, that limited corporate spending in elections? Uh, I went through Justice Powell's papers, which are all available, and you could see how the case went, uh, was decided uh, it, on a day-by-day basis. And you could see that what happens is that he realizes he has to do something to keep his majority. And though Powell had, been, um, had not been a supporter of the listeners' rights theory uh, of the First Amendment in the Virginia Pharmacy case. In fact, I found a little note in his Virginia Pharmacy uh, memorandums saying, this is ridiculous. It's about the rights of speakers and not the rights of listeners. Um, But to retain the vote of Justice Harry Blackmun, who seemed to possibly be wavering in the Bellotti case, uh, Nader, uh, uh, sorry, Powell rewrote his opinion and wrote the opinion made it to be about the rights of listeners. Um, He said in the opinion that asking whether corporations have political speech rights, he said, is, quote, the wrong question. All that matters is whether the corporations want to spend their money on speech that the listeners have a right to hear and in this case, political speech, right at the center of the First Amendment. Listeners' rights, by the way, would also uh, be used again by Justice Anthony Kennedy in the Citizens United case. Um, uh, The court uh, in Citizens United would emphasize that the identity of the corporate speaker was irrelevant to the First Amendment question. In fact, what Justice Kennedy says uh, is that this is about protecting the rights of listeners, Right, So for all the, converse, all the debate that's come out of Citizens United about are corporations people, Kennedy never says in that opinion that corporations are people. He never says it, never implies it. Nothing, is ba- nothing in that opinion is based on the idea that corporations are people with the exact same rights as you and me. In fact, he emphasizes a couple of different theories of, of the corporation, most notably for our purposes here, the listener's rights theory, that regardless of whether corporations are people and have same, the same rights as people, the listeners Uh, have the right to hear what the corporations have to say. So first of all, let's go back a step. What is corporate personhood? It's a misunderstood idea, to be sure, uh, and controversial today. But a very long-standing principle of business law is that corporations are legal persons for some purposes. If you go back all the way to 1757, Blackstone, in his famous commentaries on the laws of England, Uh, describes corporations as, quote, artificial persons. Indeed, if you open up any introductory textbook on corporate law or business associations used in law school today, uh, you will see that one of the very first lessons in these books is, as Robert Clark's famous corporate law book uh, says, uh, corporations are, quote, fictional but legally recognized entities or persons that are treated as having some of the same attributes as natural persons. Now, look, of course, to say that corporations are legal persons is not to make an existential claim that corporations are just like you and me, uh, right? Uh, they, they are not. Uh, they are artificial uh, entities. Um, but what corporate personhood means in the law is that the corporation is its own independent legal entity in the eyes of the law, wholly separate and apart from the people who formed it, from the people who work for it, uh, from the people who invest in it. When we understand corporate personhood in this way, in the way it's built into corporate law today, we can recognize that for most of the Supreme Court's history, the court has rejected corporate personhood rather than relied on it in expanding the rights of corporations. Right, recall Chief Justice uh, John Marshall's uh, opinion in uh, the Bank of the United States case. What does he say in that case? He doesn't say that corporations are citizens. He says that corporations, the members of the corporation are citizens, and the corporation gets to exercise the rights of the shareholders. Again, ignoring the legal separation that is corporate personhood. The same thing, Sam Alito's opinion in the Hobby Lobby case. Uh, Alito writes the majority opinion, and he says that the birth control requirement of Obamacare burdened the religious liberty rights of the Green family, the owners of Hobby Lobby, the closely held corporation, Uh, owners. Again, rejecting the separation, the legal separation between the rights of the shareholders and the rights of the corporate entity. Justice Anthony Kennedy's opinion, by the way, in Citizens United, in addition to relying on Nader's listeners' rights theory, also relies on uh, that sort of John Marshall, Sam Alito approach. Instead of describing corporations as uh, persons, which he never does, He says corporations are associations of citizens, repeatedly in the opinion, right? That, again, ignoring the distinct rights between the members of the corporation and the corporate entity itself. These cases, the court is rejecting corporate personhood. Over the years, I found a few cases in the Supreme Court where the court did embrace genuinely corporate personhood, that idea that a corporation is a legally independent entity with its own rights and duties that are wholly separate and apart from the rights and duties of its members. The unexpected thing I found was that when the court has embraced this principle of corporate personhood, surprisingly, it's generally resulted in corporations having fewer and more restricted rights than ordinary individuals. In 1839, for example, the Supreme Court refused to extend to corporations the privileges and immunities of Article IV of the Constitution. This is a provision that means that if a Colorado citizen moves to California and establishes permanent residence there, then that person is entitled to all the same rights as a local native Californian. And business corporations in the early 1830s who were seeking to capitalize on a growing national economy at the time sought to use this provision to challenge state laws that prohibited out-of-state corporations from coming into the state to do business. Generally, they imposed all these special requirements or prohibited them outright from coming into their state. And the corporations challenged these, uh, these laws by saying, this violates the privileges and immunities of citizens. Our members are citizens And as uh, citizens of the United States, they're entitled to do business in every state of the Union. They're entitled to move wherever they want. Uh, That's protected by the Privileges and Immunities Clause of Article 4 of the Constitution. The Supreme Court at the time, led by Roger Taney, uh, ruled against the corporations. Now, Taney is rightly reviled today for his opinion in the Dred Scott case. He was the author of that opinion. But if there's one thing that today's progressives might appreciate about Roger Taney, it's that he was a corporate reformer who was opposed to expansive rights for business corporations. Taney said, in his opinion, rejecting the privileges and immunities for business corporations, that a corporation is, quote, a person for certain purposes. When a corporation makes a contract, it is the contract of that legal entity, of the artificial being created by the charter, and not the contract of the individual members. As a result, the corporation would have the privileges and immunities if the text said that it applied to corporations, but it instead says it applies to citizens, and Taney saw there's a distinct separation between the rights of the members of the corporation, who might very well be entitled to go do business in any state uh, in the union, and the rights of the legal entity, the corporation, which could be restricted, the court said. The court did something similar in uh, the early 1900s in a case arising out of Teddy Roosevelt's famous effort to break up the trusts. So the first trust that Teddy Roosevelt tried to break up was the Tobacco Trust, which was run by uh, the American Tobacco Company at the time, controlled 95% of the tobacco market. And, uh, And Teddy Roosevelt subpoenaed the officers of the American Tobacco Company that ran this trust to come testify before the grand jury. And uh, the American Tobacco Company um, uh, went to court and argued that you can't require our own officers to testify against our company. That's a violation of the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, right? That you can't be forced to give testimony against yourself. Um, The Supreme Court, uh, however, uh, rejected that claim, saying there wasn't a Fifth Amendment right Uh, involved there, uh, that there was a strict separation between the corporate entity and the members of the corporation, including the officers of the corporation. And so when the officer testifies, if he incriminates the corporation, he is not incriminating himself. He's incriminating a separate legal person, the corporation. These are cases where the Supreme Court took that separation, that that core tenant of corporate personhood, and read the rights of corporations to be more restricted than the rights of individuals. Fueled by the capital amassed with the corporate form and assisted by the best lawyers money could buy, uh, corporations have been fighting for constitutional rights uh, since the very early 1800s. They use those rights to strike down business regulation uh, and to make it harder to regulate the economy. But corporations and the story is nuanced uh, and that corporations have also been important first movers and innovators in constitutional law uh, at the forefront of rights like the freedom of the press, rights that are important for individuals as well. And contrary to common belief, uh, I've tried to suggest today that corporate personhood has not been the basis for rulings like Citizens United. And in fact, if we think about it, might be the key to restraining the rights of corporations, for distinguishing the rights of corporations from the rights of their members. Citizens United and Hobby Lobby have certainly brought the issue of corporate constitutional rights to public attention. But uh, I wish to suggest that um, these cases are only the most recent chapters of a much older story. Uh, And that's the story of the corporate rights movement. Uh, What I think it's fair to say is one of the least known but most successful civil rights movements in American history. Thank you.
0: That was Adam Winkler on Corporate Constitutional Rights. He spoke in Denver in November, 2019. Adam Winkler is Professor of Law at UCLA. He's the author of We the Corporations, a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 34th year. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the media, such as Ralph Nader, Jim Hightower, and Arundhati Roy. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, AlternativeRadio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, AlternativeRadio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Adam Winkler on Corporate Constitutional Rights, and for his book, We the Corporations, just give us a call at one 800 444 Seven seven. Again, that number is one 1977 Or you can order on our website alternativeradio.org. Martin Folker recorded the program. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening. My name is Ohama, and I live on a potato farm in western Canada. CJSW 90.9 FM Calgary. Broadcasting to potato farms all over.